Okay, so I love hearing from you guys about this journey of discovering your greater mission in life because I think some of the things you guys are wrestling with and thinking about are things that everybody is actually experiencing. So I want to try my best when I can to take a note of when somebody shared something with me that feels like, okay, this is something we all might be thinking. I'm not going to call you out if you share something with me, but I do just want to say, hey, this might be a common thought. So I wanted to start by talking about um, does loving yourself lead to pride? It's an interesting question, right? And in this journey that we're talking about valuing who God made you to be and really accepting that and celebrating that, I know for some people there's this tendency to feel like, but am I going to be prideful? Or is this going to be something that makes me feel prideful? And so in, and that hesitation almost makes us want to back up and not go there. And I felt like God just wanted me to highlight for, for whoever might feel that way in the room that loving yourself is actually only prideful if you're looking at it apart from Jesus. I mean, essentially that's what pride is, right? It's just basically saying, I'm so awesome because I did something on my own. But if we're being honest, we are who we are because God made us that way. And so to celebrate yourself being made in the image of God is actually to celebrate God, which is not pride. So for whatever that's worth, I feel like that's worth just saying on a found, you know, fundamental, foundational level, this is a journey that God wants you to go on. We're in this series of being on mission. We're talking about your grander mission of life. And another way that we could word this is to say it like this. God has given you a gift. The Father has given you a gift. We know, in, but, the, but the thing is that in the Bible, it doesn't describe it as a gift from the Father, right? It's, it's so intrinsic to who you are, but your personality and your mission in life is God's gift to you as a good dad. That's what he gave to you. And then the Holy Spirit gives us gifts that are listed in the Bible, some of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are listed in the Bible, and we're familiar with those, and so we could say, okay, this is a gift to me from the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus gives us gifts in the fivefold ministry applications. And so if we're really thinking about it, to go on this journey of discovering your grander mission is actually to say, God, you gave me a gift. I want to unwrap it, right? Instead of saying, Lord, you're really great, God, as a dad, but like keeping that sort of baseline distance from him. It's like, no, God, you, as a dad, you gave me the gift of who I really am. And so I'm actually rejecting the gift if I don't take the time to unwrap it. So in this series, we're almost done unwrapping God's, the Father's gift to you. And then we're going to transition and start talking about the gifts you've been given from the Holy Spirit and the gifts you've been given by Jesus and from Jesus. And so um, I just want to just pause and say that's what's happening here. And so any way I can explain it, any different way I can explain it, I feel like is worth saying that. I mentioned to you guys last week that the enemy's greatest delight, one of his greatest delights, is hiding your real self from you. And I loved in our small group, we started talking about what is it about the world, at least in my, my group of conversation, we started talking about what is it about the world that makes us feel like we're not supposed to be who we really are? Or what is it that makes us feel like what we really are is not really what people want? And I honestly think a lot of us struggle with this sort of, I have an innate sense of what I'm like, but I've seen what other people want out in the world. And so how do I become that and connect the two so that I can be socially acceptable, or maybe that's not the thought that's in your mind, but you know, not feel like you're an outcast or on the edge or whatnot. And I think that that moment right there, that rub, is where I want to camp on today, and we're going to look on some amazing um, insights from a very popular story we're going to get into in a minute. But I just want to say that as people, we gravitate towards what we celebrate, right? The culture that we put on display is what we try to replicate in our lives. So let me put it this way, um, you know, the, the current supermodel trend is what we all think we're supposed to look like. But if you actually read history, I think it was the 15 or 1600s, the ideal body type was pale and overweight. Can I get an amen, right? 
Like, let's be realistic. How do we go back to that? Like, where did we get off course to think these rare genetic people who just don't hold body fat are what all of us should ascribe to? Somehow, because we've celebrated that, because we've put that on magazines, because we've made those people famous, because we've looked at how much money they make just by genetically being born, you know, most of these women especially, they didn't do anything to do that. They just, that's just how they are. It's how they're wired, right? And so we've looked at that and we've said, well, we celebrate that, so I got to figure out how to make myself into that when that is just what's being celebrated right now. Back in the day, in the 1500s, 1600s, the, the best people you wanted to be like, they had more money so they could eat more. And they had more money so they didn't have to work in the field. That's why they were pale. So you had the skinny, tan people who were always feeling sad about themselves that they didn't look like that. What has happened in the world? We've had a total reversal, and I have a feeling someday it will change again, and we'll start celebrating, you know, like the eyebrow phase, okay? Like, if you just want to watch what people emulate, just watch what's happening in famous people's eyebrows. It's like, okay, now we're facing them up. Now we're facing them sideways. Now we're doing the rainbow, you know, you saw those things on Pinterest, the Christmas tree eyebrow, where they would like gel their eyebrows into trees. I don't think anybody does that for real, but it's out there, and people are celebrating it, you know, and you kind of go, Okay, now some of us have an innate sense of ourself enough to go, no thanks. But there's others of us are saying, but that's what's being put on display. And so how do I get that? Another great example, mom jeans. Guys, right? Mom jeans were outcasts. Nobody would touch a mom jean until a new wave of people grew up, you know, recently started wearing them. And everybody goes, oh, I should celebrate that. Let me buy some mom jeans. The most unflattering outfit there ever has been. One more example for you, me in eighth grade. So I've mentioned to you guys how, you know, we are the culmination of the five people we spend the most time with, right? And so my five people I spent the most time with, three of them were really into Nirvana. Now, I wasn't into Nirvana because I just, I was more a musical kind of kid. I mean, Phantom of the Opera, Les Miserables, I could quote every line of that. Kurt Cobain, I knew his name, knew his picture, but I didn't really know much about it. But all my friends did, and so I became a goth. I know looking at me right now, that's surprising, but I'm telling you, for over a year, I wore my hair completely over one eye, and my mom would not support the phase, you know, God bless the good moms out there, and so, you know, when every time my hair would kind of flow back over my eye, she'd go, oh, there it is, your other eyeball, I missed it so much, it just poking fun at me, you know, and I would wear my hair like this, and I saved up a couple dollars and went to the Walgreens and bought some silver lipstick, and I kid you not, every day of eighth grade, I wore silver lipstick, and I had my hair down like this, and I was an imposter goth, because I was a positive kid, I didn't believe in the depression side of it, I thought all of that was dumb, but I could tell that all my friends thought it was neat, so I went to the, what was then the really cool cool Abercrombie and Fitch and bought a plaid uh, flannel shirt and a plaid skirt and I wore the tights and I was a total 90s goth kid for about a year and a half. Why? Because I was trying to replicate what I was celebrating, what I saw in other people. Now, I mean, if we're really honest, who celebrates depression? I mean, that's a very weird thing to do, but for, for a while, our nation did that. We swept into this whole, this is cool, let's be grunge, let's be dirty, and that's neat, Right? Anyways, in some ways it might be coming back in, but we don't have to talk about that. So, but are you tracking with me? What we celebrate outwardly is what we, we just have this gravitational pull towards trying to replicate that in our lives. And so when we talk about the church, I want you to push pause for a second and say, what in the kingdom of God do I celebrate that maybe is a one-sided thing? 
For example, in some spheres of Christian living, leadership and godly leadership is what's the most celebrating. And I actually, I love that. I listen to a lot of leadership podcasts about church leadership in particular. It's just something that I'm wired in and I really love it. But if that's all I'm listening to, then I might try to start taking everything that has to do with God and, and sort of like formulating it like a business, which takes sort of the heart out of God, out of church, Right? We are a living, breathing thing, and so we can't just put walls around it and say, just, you know, go on your way and keep going. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. But if we celebrate the leadership aspect of God and how he is as a leader, then all of a sudden I want to try to replicate that in my life. Or maybe we're celebrating the um, free-flowing Holy Spirit nature of God, and we're not celebrating the part that the Word is the infallible Word of God. And so we're over here going, God said this, and God said this, and God said this, and somebody else wants to say, have you read the Bible? I don't need to read the Bible because I'm hearing from God every day, right? And we start celebrating that and replicating that, and now we're off course this way. Are you guys tracking with me? So we have to be careful about what we're celebrating. Now, the other side of the balance is that we're supposed to celebrate people different than us. So welcome to the paradox of life, right? That God calls us to honor people who are different than us. He calls us to say, wow, you do that, and I can't do that. I want to celebrate that. But there's a difference in celebrating a difference for the sake of how it makes you better versus celebrating a difference because that's what you think God likes the best. You tracking with that? So some of the, the rub that we get into is when we have somehow believed a lie that that's the more favorable thing to God, and it's different than who we are. And so when we start to look at ourselves and we start to feel this sort of sense of shame or even frustration of like, God, why did you make me like that? To be completely honest, there's multiple seasons over the course of my life where I've said that to God. Man, Lord, why can't I be like that person? Why can't I be like this person? And the big defining moment for me came when I started realizing that the world doesn't know how to celebrate someone like me because I can't celebrate me. Jesus puts it this way. He says, you're going to love your neighbor like you love yourself. So I would say to you, the degree you love yourself is how you're going to love other people, right? So if you're judging other people, it's a pretty good indicator you're judging yourself because that's just how it works. When I see someone on Facebook, you know, a Facebook troll or whatever who's like picking a fight, it actually, sometimes it makes me angry, but most of the time it just makes me sad because I think how much war must you be in in your own heart? That, you're into, you know, that you could go inward to yourself because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So if we're going to love people like Jesus loved him, the thing you have to do is figure out how Jesus loves you and totally accept that place. Because when you're there, then you start to extend grace to people who are different than you. Why? Because you want grace extended to you. Then you start to judge people by their motivation, not by what they're doing, because you want people to judge you by your motives, not by what you did, right? Well, I meant well with that. Do you see what I'm saying? And so when we, when we take stake and we say, okay, what is it that I'm celebrating? What part of even the Christian life am I putting? Am I saying God likes this more than he likes that? That could be because you just haven't seen that be celebrated quite yet. I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to quote, this is me. I mean, uh, not this is me. The Greatest Showman one more time. I mentioned it last week. Best movie that I've seen in a really long time, so I can't help myself. But I was um, processing this message this week, and I, God reminded me of that moment when P.T. Barnum is talking to the bearded lady. Now, this is fiction. And this isn't what happened in real life. But, but she says, they're not going to like me. And he says, they're going to love you. They just don't know it yet. And God was speaking to me, you know, there's this something about who you are. If you don't feel celebrated in the kingdom of God, it's because people just don't know yet that they need to celebrate you. 
It's not because there's something wrong with you. It's not because your perspective is inferior or not worthy to be celebrated. It's just that it hasn't come your time to step out there and go, this is me, right? And then sometimes when we do step out there and we say, this is me, and we're around people who don't have a value for that, it can feel kind of hurtful and like, okay, this is me, but ooh, you guys really don't like that part of me. Like, like we could go into, if you're a preacher, if you're a teacher, if, you, if you're a quiet person, if you're a loud person, I think some of the most powerful people in the world are actually really meek, quiet people, but we don't know how to celebrate that. So we celebrate strength that looks like dominance. But dominance is not strength. In my opinion, dominance is not that you're, there can be dominance that is strength, but a lot of times when someone's exerting dominance, it's they're trying to control something from a place of fear in themselves, and so the real strength comes from the person who has the self-control to hold their tongue in a moment of frustration. Are you tracking with me? So what we celebrate, we want to gravitate towards. So, so yeah, I just want you guys to take a second, whether it's you may already have figured it out in this moment, or just take some time with the Lord and just say, God, what is it that I'm celebrating that might be not healthy for me in this moment? Or is there a part of the kingdom life that I've looked at and said, Lord, I think that is what you like the most because of whatever reason, because it seems like they do the most miracles, because it seems like they, you know, we all have different reason, like reasonings, because it seems like they're the smartest, because they're the most eloquent. And we can step back and say, but maybe it's just that I haven't seen someone be really quiet with dynamic power. Or what if it's that I haven't seen someone be really bold, but pray and not do miracles? I mean, you see what I'm saying? So what we celebrate, we, we replicate. All right. We're going to get into the story today. I want you guys to whip out your Bible phones, because I know that's what you have. Ten points to anybody who actually brought a paper Bible. Hey, I see. Hey, guys. Wow. That's amazing. Yes, I love that. The Bible I'm using right now doesn't have the Old Testament, so I'm on my phone. So sorry that I'm not in the, the cool club today. Um, I'm not going to put this on the screen because it's a long section, but today we're talking about that age-old story, David and Goliath, and I'm hoping to bring some insight to you. I was um, totally geeking out this week as God was just showing me all these different nuances to the story. I'm not going to tell you about all of them for the sake of time, but I do want to mention a few. So we're going to start in 1 Samuel 17, verse 20. I'm going to give you a second to pull that up. Of course, I'm going to read from the Amplified Bible, but follow along. And I want you, we're going to ask the Lord, God, would you open our eyes to what's in this story? Would you illuminate in our spirits things that we might not have seen? Because most of us are familiar with the giant Goliath, the young guy David, the fact he was defeated. But there's a lot of stuff in this story that is for us in this season. So I want to give you a little background as you're still turning to it. The first part of the background is this. Saul, the king of Israel, has been tormented. He has disobeyed God. God's spirit has left him. Samuel, the prophet, has anointed David to be the king, but his time has not come yet. Saul is tormented by this evil spirit, the Bible says, in the, I think it's the chapter or two before, and he needed a musician to come and play for him, and David was tending to Saul on a semi-regular to regular basis, playing the harp to ease his panic attacks, okay? So in all intents and purposes, David was known as a musician, now Saul begins to, have to enjoy David's soothingness so much that he keeps David around. And actually, if you really get into it, David wasn't in the fields all the time as a shepherd and then going occasionally to battle. It was actually a little bit the other way around. He was with Saul most of the time and then going back to tend his father's sheep from time to time. And after Goliath is killed, then Dave, Saul basically says to David, you need to stay here all the time now. And so he's, he's, um, he's growing in favor in Saul's eyes, and Saul makes him his armor bearer. 
Okay, so David had a familiar um, understanding of the ways of battle, but he was, for all intents and purposes, known as a musician at this point. But in his own heart, he knew he was a warrior. He had had those experiences, killing the bear, the lion, right? And so I'm just giving you a little painting the backstory for you before we set the stage. One last thing I want to make a note of is, the last, so in the Old Testament, the Israelites and the Philistines went to battle, I think it's seven listed times. This is battle number five of the seven, okay? Not all of those battles were victorious. In fact, the one battle before that they went up against the Philistines was when Eli, the high priest who was corrupt, he, uh, bless you, <laughs> get you going, right? Um, when Eli, the high priest, he, let, he basically did not listen to the Lord. They went into battle against the Philistines. The Philistines ate the Israelites alive, and they stole the Ark of the Covenant. And that was, you know, actually turns out to be a phenomenal story. And um, it's one of Grant's favorites, so you've probably heard him teach on it before. But they stole the Ark of the Covenant, and then they could not contain it because the vengeance of the Lord would not be held in an enemy territory, right? There's a lot to this, but I'm going to keep on track. So anyways, they, tumors started appearing. All this crazy stuff started happening. The Philistines go, we got to get this ark out. They pass it around to all these enemy camps, and eventually the enemies just give it back to the Israelites because so much bad things were happening around the Ark of the Covenant in the enemy camps. They're like, we can't obviously contain this. God was on the move. God was vindicating his own name. One of my favorite parts of that story is when they put the Ark of the Covenant in a temple with this god they called Dagon, and they would come in the next morning, and the statue of Dagon would be bowing in front of the Ark of the Covenant, and they'd pick the statue of Dagon back up, and then I think like the next day his head had come off or something like that, and it was crazy. If you want to read that story, you can find it in 1 Samuel 4. But so think about this. The Israelites, now if you're looking at the timeline, Samuel was a young boy in that battle. Now Samuel is a grown man as the prophet over where Saul is. So this is in the same basic generation. So the Israelites stepping up to the plate to fight the Philistines would have known what happened the last time when they got there booties kicked and they lost the Ark of the Covenant. Big deal, right? So it puts a little context into where their fear was really coming from. So now one last thing in the, in the um, backstory. Saul is tormented. I believe the Philistines probably caught wind of that and they were seizing the moment that Saul, the valiant leader of the army, was off his game, and so they show up at Israel's doorstep in battle formation. Okay, that's where we're going to pick up the story. Okay, so um, they were, let's see, verse 19 says, now they were with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting the Philistines. So one more thing, and I think it's going to say this, but in case I started later than it does. So the, the Philistines show up in battle formation. The Israelite army shows up in battle formation in the valley of Elah. Okay, it's this giant field with, this, with a valley, right? And they stand there, basically, you know, not toe-to-toe, but army-to-army, for 40 days, morning and night, they assemble in formation to smack talk. That's what's happening here. This, I don't know about you, this is such a weird story. Okay, here we go. uh, Let's see, 1 Samuel 17, verse 20. So David got up early in the morning. Remember, he had, now he was with his dad, but he wasn't staying all the time with his dad. And he left the flock with the keeper. He picked up the provisions and went as his dad had told him to go to the army and feed his brothers. And when he came to the encampment, as the army was going out in battle formation, shouting the battle cry, Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle formation, army against army. Then David left his provisions in the care of the supply keeper, and he ran to the ranks and came and greeted his brothers. I would say to you, this is one of the indicators we know that he was familiar with the battle, because if you're looking at an army, it's pretty hard to find your brother. But he knew exactly where his brothers were in the formation. He was familiar with what was going on. 
It says, um, verse 23, as he was talking, he's greeting his brothers, as he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words again, and David heard him. I find that interesting because I wonder, it doesn't make note of it, but I wonder if this was the first time David had actually heard Goliath saying it. Just have not, I mean, he would have known what was going on, but if he actually heard it with his ears, I don't know. Verse 24, when the men of Israel all saw the man, they fled from him and they were very frightened. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he is coming to defy Israel. Now, this is an interesting note because how could Goliath defy Israel? Because the last time they fought the Philistines, they were defiled. But it wasn't the Philistines that defiled them. It was their own sin. It was their own disobedience to God. Eli's corruption of not keeping his sons holy in the house of the Lord that led them to be eaten alive by the Philistines. But here they're playing the blame game, right? Uh, Earlier and a little bit farther up in this chapter, it goes on, it uses five verses to describe Goliath's uh, appearance. This is one of the only times in the Bible that they actually take a note to make a lot of explanation of appearance. There's a lot in that, but I will just make a note for you that the armor that Goliath is wearing, they they say there's different interpretations, but they say he was somewhere between six feet nine and nine feet nine inches tall. He was wearing 125 or six pounds of armor. That's a big guy. Now you're talking about someone who can be agile on a battlefield holding that much. A lot of people can bench press that, squat lift that, whatever those words are, because I'm not an exerciser Um, like that anyway. I'm not a CrossFit person, but people can do that. But to wear it, that's a whole other type of strength. And not only that, but the spear that he would use was 15 pounds, the tip of it. When my baby was 15 pounds, I didn't carry her anywhere. I put her in the stroller everywhere. Because I'm like, this is hard. You're talking about being on a battlefield and lifting that up? This is intense, right? And he also had other, arm, other uh, he had a javelin, he had a sword, other things with him. So he was a pretty buff guy. The image in my mind is like WrestleMania. Like WrestleMania is coming to town with the smack, the smack talk, okay? All right, so uh, let's see, where are we? We are in verse 25. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man coming up? Surely he's coming to defy Israel. The king will reward the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter in marriage and make his father's family uh, free from taxes and service in Israel. Pretty good deal. And then David spoke to the men who were standing by him. What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes the disgrace of his taunting from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he has taunted and defied the armies of God? I want to pause here to let you see something. He just heard what was going to be done. They just told him, right? What's happening here, I believe, is David had a mission. He had been anointed to be the king of Israel. His mission in life was to lead these people. He didn't have the title of it yet, but he had his mission. I would say the grander mission of his life, he probably knew that was to be a man after God's own heart. So when we're talking about going on this process of defining for yourself, you can see how his definitive understanding of himself even came to play in this moment. What's he doing? He's trying to raise morale. He's being a good leader. He's asking questions. He's saying, well, what's going to be done? He's trying to see that glimmer in somebody's eye. Is there anybody here that's actually interested in this reward? In other words, is this the right reward for you to rise up to the battle? It's interesting, right? So he asks again, okay? And so then they tell him, But this time he makes a note. He says, it's not just that you're going to defeat the Philistines. What was happening in this battle is the Philistines wanted to enslave the Israelites. This wasn't a, I want to annihilate you. It was, I want you to do my beck and call. So this was an important battle. This wasn't something they could just rush into, right? Because if they did die or lose, then 
all of the history of Israel would be forever changed. So David knows that. So he's walking. This is how I envision it. He's walking through the ranks because he knows. We know he's already up there with the battle. He's asking questions. He's trying to figure out. And then he highlights to them, it's Goliath's taunting that's the problem here. Okay? We're going to cap back to that in a second. Verse 27, the men told him, that is what will be done for this man who kills him. In other words, you just listened to that. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard what he was saying to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David. Why? Because he could see what David was trying to do. He could see that David was stepping into his leadership anointing. That's what I think was happening here. Anybody have a sibling that knows your calling that really doesn't like that calling? And when you start to step out in that calling and they start going, oh, I know that look in your eye. Oh, I know you're trying to, right? My brother and I, we go way back, obviously. And we've had plenty of time where I'm trying to convince the family to do, you know, in high school to take a vacation one way. And I'll start spinning wheels. And, you know, you remember how much fun we had when we went there? And he would go, oh, I know what you're trying to do. And his anger would burn, you know, like let's, let's just say this is hypothetical, but I want to go skiing this year. I don't want to go to the beach, right? Don't you start making people think the beach is where you're supposed to go. So that's what Eliab is doing. And so his, he says to David, why have you come down here? With whom did you leave those sheep in the wilderness? He's trying to remind him of his, his current status in life, not his anointed status in life. Remember, Eliab was there when David was anointed to be king, Okay. So he's bringing him down. He's cutting him down. Why have you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption. The Amplified calls it your overconfidence and the evil of your heart. It wasn't evil. Eliab just wanted him to stop. For you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, what, I have, what have I done now? Was it not just a harmless question? Oh, David knows it's not a harmless question, but he's trying to defuse the situation. And then David turned away from Eliab to someone else. I love that. He doesn't go head to head with him. He just goes, hey, it's just a harmless question. Let me go over here and see if I can rally the troops in this area. And then David turned away and he says, and so it says, he asked the same question and the people gave him the same answer as the first time. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, the men reported to Saul and he sent for him. David said to Saul, let no man's courage fail because of him, Goliath. Your servant will go out and fight this Philistine. In other words, I have scanned the troops. None of them want to go, but I'm the leader of this army, so it's my job. You see what's happening here? This is so cool to me. So then Saul says to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine and fight him, for you're only a young man, and he has been a warrior since his youth. But David says to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock. I went after it, and I attacked it, and I rescued the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose up against me, I seized it by its whiskers and struck and killed it. Your servant has, in other words, your servant, this guy who you think doesn't have any battle experience, has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted and defied the armies of the living God. What I believe is happening in this story is that the Israelites were remembering the Philistines' victory, but David was remembering God's willingness to vindicate his name. Same story, same situation, same defeat. But what David is focusing on is that God will stop at nothing to defend his own name. The Israelites were focusing on the fact they got their hinds kicked, right? And then he does this. He tells himself a testimony. He's testifying to Saul, but also to himself, saying, remember, you are this guy. And I'm sure he was thinking to himself, you are anointed king of Israel, and so God is going to vindicate his name one way or another. It might as well be through me. He was on mission. Can we all agree with that? 
And so David said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. In other words, I can see what God is doing here. Get on your way. And then Saul dressed David in his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head and a coat of mail of armor on him. Then David fastened his sword over his armor and tried to walk, but he could not because he was not used to them. A lot of us think that David didn't want Saul's armor because it was too big. It actually doesn't say it was too big. It says it was uncomfortable that he wasn't used to it, right? David knew, if I'm going to defeat this battle that's in front of me, I have to be myself. I cannot put on somebody else's skin. I can't put on somebody else's ways. He knows that he's going to be a warrior. That's what this, this is a battle moment, right? He knows it's a warrior moment. But instead of taking on a warrior persona, he lets the warrior rise up inside of his persona. Are you guys seeing this? This is so interesting. So he rejects the, the status quo of what it looks like to be somebody who fights in a battle. And so he took, takes them off, verse 40. Then he took his shepherd's staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones out of the stream bed, and he put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had. I think this is interesting because he wasn't thinking he was going to do it the first time. Right? He wasn't being like over naive. He wasn't being over prideful or zealous. He was being honest. This is a battle. I'm going to give for myself enough. I'm going to take enough to be able to win. Right? But he's going to do it true to himself. Oh, it's so exciting. Okay. So he takes, the, um, he takes them out of the stream bed and he put them in his shepherd's bag, which he had, that is, in his shepherd's pouch. With his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine as only he could be as a warrior. A lot of times when we start thinking about, even when we talk about spiritual warfare, we talk about going up to the battle that's in our lives, we start thinking, I need to be like that person who displays the warrior persona so much. But what if you stepped up to the battle in your life just as you are, in the name of the Lord, with him on your side? Because it's not about knowing how to pray the right prayers or fast the right way or any of that. It's about, God, you have put this battle in front of me, and I can overcome because you, because of God, Right? We're all called to be giant slayers, but some of the biggest and greatest battles of giants we're going to slay is actually inside our own self. It's the giants of doubt. It's the fear. It's the insecurity. It's the, it's, you know, the panic. It's whatever it is. Those are the giants that we're slaying, and so you don't have to become like somebody else to defeat it. You just got to get what's in your hand. Maybe it's dancing. Maybe it's singing. Maybe it's Uno, I don't know, but whatever you do really well, you come with the name of the Lord, right? I mean, have we seen somebody win a battle of, with Uno? Not yet, but maybe it's coming. <laughs> All right, verse 41, the Philistine came and approached David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked around and saw David, he derided and disparaged him because he was just a young man with a ruddy complexion and a handsome appearance. Just think for a second. You go onto a battlefield. All these people are cut. They've got scars all over their face. They're gnarly-looking men. And here comes David, the musician, quaffed hair, you know, cool outfit because he's not wearing, you know, I mean, it would be like, wait, this guy, this guy, this is, you're not a warrior, you're a musician. And his handsome appearance, it cracks me up. All right, in the Philistine, verse 43, Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with shepherd's staff? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Have you ever been cursed? I have a time or two. It's an uncomfortable experience, okay? Especially when someone's calling on not your God, but somebody else's God to curse you, right? It could be an intimidating experience, but I love that David is like, it's not even an issue here. Whatever you're going to do, it's all the same category of it need, just needs to be silenced and defeated. Okay, and he's not put off by that at all. I love that. It doesn't even sway his confidence. 
It says, verse 44, the Philistine also said to David, and isn't it interesting that the writer doesn't mention what those curses were? It's like it's irrelevant. We don't even need to. But he does say so much else of the conversation. Then, see, the, excuse me, verse 44, the Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Anybody else think about WrestleMania? Isn't this what happens at the beginning when they're going head to head? I haven't watched it, but I, I've seen some commercials. So then David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. In other words, your issue is not that you came with the battle, it's that you taunted me and my people, that you're telling us lies. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give you, excuse me, I will give the corpses of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that this entire assembly may know that the Lord does not save with the sword or spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will hand you over to us. Wow, that would be good smack talk, but it's not. It's a declaration, right? He's saying, oh, this is what you want to do to me. Well, let me tell you, I'm going to do that to you. We also see this happen in the book of Esther. Haman creates this whole big plan for Mordecai, and God goes, what you plan for Mordecai? There's some interesting uh, mirroring there, huh? All right, 48. When the Philistines rose and came forward to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand into his bag, took out the stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone penetrated his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. Most people say that stone was traveling somewhere between 60 and 100 miles per hour. Like, ouch. All right, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. This is so interesting, verse 50. And he struck down the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. So he ran. He didn't walk. He didn't go, well, it looks like he's dead. You know, you hooray, guys. No, he ran up over to the... It says, Verse 51, so he ran and stood over the Philistine, grasped his sword, drew it out of his sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their mighty champion was dead, they fled. He killed Goliath twice. He did in verse 49 and verse 50. I, who knows which point he actually died, right? But the writer's not crazy. He's not lying. He's not contradicting himself. He's making a point. Goliath was disabled. He was, in a sense, dead. How, you know, especially in that time, I'm sure they didn't know to feel for a pulse or how to gauge. And so David was like, I am not risking this. He's dead, but I cannot risk for him to have some sort of miraculous recovery when he goes into the giant sickbay and come back and taunt us again. No, this guy has to be dead, dead. Like, let me carry his head everywhere I go. This is so gross, and this is the guy who's after God's own heart. It's weird, right? But what's happening here, and what I believe that God was breathing on, is we are called to be like Jesus— but we're also called to be like David and be ruthless with the taunts of the enemy. In a lot of areas of our life, we're called to be patient. We're called to be loving. We're called to, you know, like Jesus tells us, turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. You know, bless when they curse, right? But there are other times where God says, you be ruthless with that. Why? Because that lie is incapacitating you. What was happening to the people of God is the Israelites were a mighty, valiant warrior nation. They were in the will of God to do exploits through battle. But they were immobilized by the lies that the Philistines were saying. And as we can see here, when the Philistines fled, these were empty threats. It was just talk. 
And there's something of a parallel here for us where God is saying, there are times when the enemy has just been taunting you twice a day, morning and night, 40 days, 50 days, however long, trying to make you feel so inferior that you lose a sense of who you really are. But what David is showing us is that when we're gonna be in line with God, that means that when the taunting happens, that's when we step up to the plate. Circumstances go bad, that happens. Frustrating circum, you know, situations arise, that happens, that's life. But when the taunts come at you, that's when you stop and you go, get that sword out and I'm gonna cut your head off. And it's not enough to do this. Oh wow, I had a day where I didn't feel that way anymore, that's good. That's good. Let's celebrate that. But instead of stopping there and going, hooray, I had a day where I felt like myself, but then the next two weeks were awful. No, you make sure you cut the head off of that thing. Because what God is wanting is for those lies to be quieted for all the days of your life, not just for a short period. The enemy will come back at you. That's what he does. It drives him nuts to see you being yourself. It drives him nuts to see you in love with Jesus, having an intimate connection with him and being so proud of who God made you to be. It drives him nuts because you're untouchable then. So he comes at you from every way he can. He comes at you from voices of people you love. He comes at you from voices of people you're afraid of. These big people who could annihilate you, right? And he starts taunting and taunting, and God is saying, it doesn't matter your size, your stature, who you are, if you feel like a warrior or not, I will vindicate my name in you. I will vindicate my glory in you. I will vindicate the way that I made you to be. All you have to do is step up to the battle with however you are. You guys tracking with me? All right, let's keep going. Okay, 52. So the men of Israel and Judah stood with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance to the valley of the gates of Ekron. This is a long way. And the fatally wounded Philistines fell along their way, even as far as Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from their pursuit with the Philistines and plundered their camp. And then David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his weapons in his tent. He kept Goliath's sword. In fact, later on, he goes back and he gets Goliath's sword and he uses it in some pretty big battles. David was no scrawny person. Goliath's sword was large. He was able to wield it in that moment. But a couple more things I want to make note of is, so Goliath is incapacitated on the ground. David runs to him again. He doesn't hesitate. He knows the job has to be completed, not just started with a little victory, but needs to be completed. And then God provides for him. He shows up to the battle not having a sword, but we already see he had declared twice before the battle he's going to cut his head off. Don't you need a sword for that? But he shows up to the battle without a sword. Why? Because he's trusting that God will provide for him when it's time to need the provision. If he had brought the sword with him, I think he would have been confused enough in his mind of trying to be two people, right? Trying to take on the warrior persona that wasn't him. He was a warrior, no doubt about it. He was a ruthless, I mean, he goes on to do amazing exploits. You know, the song that Saul had killed thousands, but David 10,000, I mean, he's a ruthless guy. But he knew what he needed to do, and he was willing to trust God for that. I don't know about you, but this is crazy to me because there's times when we see a battle in front of us and we think, well, I'm gonna need this for it, so I'm gonna wait to engage until I have that thing to take with me. Maybe it's finances, maybe it's approval, I don't know. But God is saying, man, when you step up to the battle and you go for it, when he's saying the time is now, he will provide that thing for you. And maybe you get to keep that thing as a little trophy of all the days of your life, of one of the, one of the greatest battles. That's right, God bless you. Um, 
I felt like the word that God was reminding me of in this, of this story is to obliterate. It's an intense word, right? To obliterate the voice of the enemy that comes against us. And to obliterate means to utterly destroy. And the other thing I want to make a note of is Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 that we are instructed to take every thought captive. There's a theme, if you look for it throughout the Bible, that the thoughts that are in your brain are actually really important to God. Proverbs tells it like this, that, that the, as a man thinks, so is he, right? In other words, the, the thoughts that you're having and that you're holding, when the enemy is coming and taunting you in your mind, because that happens, it doesn't always feel like a Goliath-sized taunt. Sometimes it feels like, do you really think you can do that? I mean, that's a nice dream, but I mean, you think that you can really, really do that? I mean, you don't, you don't look like that person. Or when you're like looking at somebody who's doing something similar to you and you're thinking, wow, that's so amazing you do that. And you have that just little, little thing that comes in and says, but I, I don't know what they did to get there, but I, I, don't, I won't be able to do that. Maybe it's like starting your own business. We've got a lot of entrepreneurs in the room, you know, and God's saying, do this with your business. And it's like, well, I, don't, I don't think I can. I'll just have to wait until, until X, Y, Z, until I have this much income coming in, until I have this many clients, until I have, you know. And, and it's, it's, that's, that's a taunting and God is telling us to take every one of those captive. Captive, the definition in the English language is to be imprisoned. And I would take it to say, to imprison and cast judgment on, right? That we take those thoughts, we put them in a holding cell. Is that going to be for my greater good or not? If it's not, you don't get to stay. Bill Johnson puts it like this, I can't afford to have a thought in my mind about myself that God doesn't have in his. I love that. There's an element where we have to say, God, if I'm being true to myself, then I have to accept who you have called me to be, the places that cause me trembling and the places that I really like, right? And, in my, and, and I have to trust you that you will give me boldness to step out when you're calling me to be bold and that you will give me sweetness when you're calling me to be sweet. So what I feel like God is, is, is saying through this whole story is a couple things. One, highlighting, like I said, David being on mission knowing himself, being true to himself, being willing to stay true to himself. Saul, the leader of the Israelite army. Now, although we know he was messed up a little bit, and David more than anybody, because he was able to see that firsthand, but he, he knew what it takes to be in battle. Sometimes we get in situations with people where they say, well, this is what you need if you want to succeed, right? Sometimes they're right. We have to just gauge that. But sometimes they're trying to put something on you that's not really who you really are. So David was diligent to his mission. And he also, the thing that motivated him was the taunting of the enemy. And what I love about this is that when David had victory, all the Israelites were released. They were restored back to who they really were. Remember, they're a fighting army. They're a valiant army. And they weren't being that way because of the taunts of the enemy. And so when David stepped up to the plate and he had victory, he then liberated the army who went on to chase them down and fatally wound the Philistines. They weren't able to annihilate them. The Philistines come back for another battle or two later on down the road. But they had a huge victory in the name of the Lord. And I love that, that somebody being true to who they are, saying yes to God, freed a group of people. I would say to you that that's part of your calling too. How big is that group? It doesn't matter. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's being true to yourself and your children and their children. I look back in my family line and I can see at different parts where different ones of my ancestors have made a stand for Jesus and how that directly affected the rest of the flow, 
right? So sometimes we might try to diminish ourselves and say, well, I don't have some big calling to be the leader over Israel or, you know, some big army. But God is like, "Uh, don't discount how many descendants are going to come from you. And as you love yourself and step into your mission and accept the gift that God has given in you and the part of his glory that he's put in you, that ripple effects down into your kids, your grandkids, their kids, so on and so forth. It's like when the Bible says it to the, to the thousandth generation. And the last thing I want to do, and this is where we're going to end, is I want to challenge you guys. If, if, if the taunting thing is something that you struggle with, not everybody does, but a lot of us do. A lot of us have thoughts in our mind. And I, I am right there with you. I've had plenty of thoughts, and I still do sometimes, where it's like, wow, I don't know if I can do this, Lord. I think maybe you picked a wrong person. <laughs> Did you remember this part of me when you called me to that, right? Uh, I'm not sure how that adds up in your kingdom math, Lord. But I feel like the Lord was just issuing a challenge for us for this week, and it's this. Seven days of being thankful that you're you. It sounds really simple. But I, I really want to challenge you. If this is something you're like, wow, I, I, I struggle with this sometimes. I struggle with accepting that who God made me to be is actually the best thing for me. When you wake up, set a reminder in your phone, put it on your bathroom mirror, whatever you need to do, but be diligent and do something about it. And every day for this whole week, Lord, thank you that you made me the way that I am. Lord, which part of me do you love the most today? And just two minutes, that's it. That's nothing, right? If you're driving in your car, put a little sticker on your dash. Thank you, Lord, that you made me who I am. Because as we do that, it begins to highlight the areas that are out of balance. In our pre-service prayer this morning, somebody had a prophetic word about how God was, was taking us into a season where we were letting go of the other yokes. Because Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. But a lot of us are carrying heavier yokes. And they said, you know, I, I feel like it's even some of us aren't even aware of the yokes that we're carrying that are heavy. And when, when they said that, I just knew instinctively it's this challenge is one of the pieces of that. As we become aware of being thankful for ourselves, we become aware of the way the enemy has put something heavy on us. We're not called to wear garments of heaviness, of sadness. Man, Lord, thanks for making me me, but that was too bad, <laughs> Right? No, we're supposed to wear garments of praise to stand up tall and say, God, thank you. I may not fully understand it today, but that's okay. Thank you that I'm short, that I'm tall, that I'm, I was better suited for popularity in the 1500s, you know? Thank you, Lord. <laughs> because if we're looking with heaven's eyes, there's nothing to be sad about. When God speaks something, maybe some of us are on a health journey, right? And God's saying, be healthy. Great, be blessed in that. When God puts a heart in that, it's not, it's not heaviness. It's delight, right? When the enemy comes and puts, let's just talk about health for a second, it's like condemnation. You start feeling like you don't measure up and you start freaking out over all these little things. And oh my gosh, I ate a chocolate chip. And so now I'm, you know, might as well just quit everything. It's like, no, when God, when God is saying, be healthy, there's something else that happens in you, right? Because his yoke is easy. So I'm... That's a side note. All right, so seven days of thankfulness, seven days of loving yourself. So if you're up for that challenge, I want to hear how it's going. And even if tomorrow you're like, well, I prayed this prayer and I didn't mean it at all. Hey, be honest about it, right? That's okay, because I honestly believe as we pray this prayer, as simple as it is, Lord, just thank you for making me me. I think it's going to give room in your heart for Holy Spirit to illuminate some of the expectations, some of the... um, out-of-balance thinking that we might have put on ourselves or the enemy has put on. And the last thing I want to share is, this is a prophetic word, and I don't think I've shared it with you guys yet, although I've meant to every week, so this is the day. Um, A few weeks ago, somebody had a a prophetic word for the church that was, um, do you guys know that that show, The Wall? 
Has anybody ever seen this where it's like a cutout in a wall and it moves towards you and you have to like, no? Okay, Google it. It's a really funny Japanese show and there's like this foam wall on a roller and it comes at you, okay? And the game player has to mimic whatever cutout is in the wall to get through. And when they get through, they get to go to the next round. And sometimes if they don't, they get knocked in a little pool or, you know, you don't get hurt. But it's a pretty funny show. So some of them are like like ninja high kick, you know? And so they're like, they're all in Japanese going, you know, like trying to get somebody to hoist their leg up to get through the hole. Some of it's really small. Some of it's like pencil, you know, all these different movements. And they wear these hilarious like silver full body weird costumes. And um, so brace yourself if you do look it up and you're like, say what? Uh, it's all for the fun. But the, the prophetic word, this person had never seen this show. And they're giving this word and I'm like, this is that show. This is amazing. And Natalie's like, I remember that. And, um, and so the word was that God was calling all of us to get into a certain position. And as we went through, there was like a hole in a door. And as you positioned yourself in that way, it, was, it ended up being like a door of breakthrough. And there was tremendous presence of God and anointing and just freedom that flowed on the other side of that door. But the thing that was interesting was everybody had to get into a different shape to do it. And she was saying, like, I saw Grant in one position, and I saw you in another position, and I saw different people in the church in different positions. And I thought, what a fun thing. If I told you everybody, stand up for ministry time, create, you know, make a move, right? That would be really weird. But, um, but there was something about God, and I've been praying about that word actually for about a month now, and I keep coming back to it. I really feel like it's a funny, cutesy way to describe what's happening here. That essentially what's happening in this series is for you to get through that door of breakthrough has to look like you. I recognize that you're only hearing from me, so it's the tendency might be, well, this is how Rachel does it, but if you're not like me, then don't do that, right? Do what makes sense to you, and as you do that, as you position yourself in that way, what does that mean? That just means saying, God, thank you that I'm me. Lord, teach me how to, how to go in this way. Teach me how to celebrate myself that there's a breakthrough on the other side that, that you've never experienced before, and even for me, I'm praying that, that I'll break into an even greater level of, of presence of God and anointing and freedom in my heart and accepting myself and loving who God made me to be. And a lot of us in this room are young. And I love listening to people who are, are a little bit older, not old, but a little bit older, and they all say the same thing. There was a point that happened maybe between the 40s and 50s mark of life where I just quit caring about what other people think, right? And I, I carry this thing in my heart of what if, for those of us that are young, if we did that now, what if now we got a hold of letting go of the expectations of the world and the, the standards of what the media is celebrating and we start celebrating what we bring to the table? What could our lives look like? How could the kingdom be furthered? Dragon with me? All right, so that's how we're going to end this service. I just want you to close your eyes, put your hand on your heart, and we're just going to take a second to pray. Lord, we're going to start the challenge today. Thank you for making me me. Lord, Thank you that you created me the way that I am. Thank you that you made me and then give an example, give an adjective of who you are. Funny, thoughtful, smart, loving, kind, bold. And then we're going to take it a step farther, farther and say, Lord, thank you that you made me to love. Pick something that you love. People, dogs, media, McDonald's. <laughs> and Lord, thank you 
that I reflect your image in this way. Ask the Lord to show you one of the ways you reflect his image. All right. First day of the challenge, done. Congratulations.